All right. We are going to move forward here. Can you guys hear me in Zoom? Is it working now? Kind of? Yes. I'm glad. Sorry to those in Zoom. We've been having more technical difficulties. We're really working on trying to get all these audio challenges. And thank you to Josh for being the savior today on that front um, and helping out. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll keep learning and it'll keep improving. All right, friends. So for about a year, my kids' elementary school didn't technically have a name. It had had a name when we moved to Berkeley, and Elliot was placed there as a third grader. And it had had a name when Junior started there a year later in kindergarten. But by the time I took a stint serving in leadership of the PTA, the school I was serving at had technically been denamed, but not yet renamed. We were the school formerly known as LeConte Elementary. The whole thing had started with a brewing conversation amongst parents. Who was this Joseph LeConte that the school was named after? And it turns out, as some folks discovered, thanks to Google, his history was pretty problematic. Though he and his brother had been scientists and major developers of Berkeley, helping establish the university and the Sierra Club, they were also clear white supremacists who had moved to Berkeley after making ammunition and selling it for the Confederacy, among other things. Our school had recently transitioned to being Berkeley's only bilingual, dual immersion, Spanish-English elementary school. So how did the legacy of the name square with this identity? A petition was circulated. Parents started showing up at school board meetings. A presentation on the history of Joseph LeConte was prepared, and sure enough, the school board agreed, and they voted in 2017 that the school should no longer be called LeConte Elementary. But what should it be named instead? That was a whole other question. It turns out the district had had some experience with this and learned the hard way that the changing of the name of a school needs to be done carefully with thoughtful planning. And so a significant process was engaged. First, there was choosing the task force of community members, teachers, PTA leaders, folks in the neighborhood, folks from the district who would all work together to create and run the process of choosing the name. And then there were numerous community engagement sessions, brainstorming times, and submission opportunities where folks with various connections to the school were invited to participate. An online forum was created for people to submit their nominations for a new name. And in the end, 118 names were considered. The, teach, the, the team then had to whittle down those names from over 100, down to 20, and then eventually to seven. The task force created flyers and curriculum around each of the seven finalists. Information was distributed to students of all the elementary grades in both English and Spanish. Teachers taught on each of the candidates, and parents were given information to continue the conversations at home. And eventually, after several months of process, it was time to take a vote 
with all the various connected groups invited to participate, the students, the families, the staff, the community members, the administration. And in the end, through overwhelming community agreement, the school with no name became Sylvia Mendez Elementary, named after the Latina activist from Los Angeles, who as a child had been at the center of a California Supreme Court case, which desegregated schools in our state and was one of the precedents for Brown versus Board of Education. So after choosing Sylvia Mendez as the namesake for our school, a fantastic celebration was held. Miss Mendez herself, there she is, attended as the guest of honor, that's with Junia. Um, and LeConte School was no more. In a few months, Gwen, my youngest, will be the last to graduate from Sylvia Mendez Elementary. I start with this story because today is the last teaching in our series on community evolving. And today I want to invite us to think a little bit less abstractly, a little more concretely, about how a group actually transforms, like a school changing their name. What does it take for a change to move from the personal to the collective? From I have evolved in this way to we as a group were there and now we're here. As I mentioned two weeks ago, I thought it might be interesting as we end this series to look at the season of the early church as it's related in the book of Acts as a kind of case study on what community evolution can look like. So two weeks ago, we looked at a change involving primarily two individuals and an interaction that they had led by the Holy Spirit. And that interaction clearly had implications for the broader movement they were a part of, but it didn't overnight transform everything. So how did that bigger change impacting the larger community take place? We're going to look at that a bit today and consider what it might tell us as we chart a course for the next phase of our community evolution. So first, some context for the passage we're going to consider today. This story comes to us five chapters after the one we looked at a couple weeks ago. But the timeline between incidents is likely about eight years or so later. So to catch you up a bit, for those of you who were here and for those of you who weren't, you're just going to have to kind of enter in and try to follow along as best you can. Um, last year we shared a story about um, Peter, a leader in the early church, um, meeting someone who was outside of their community of faith, Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, and his friends in a place called Caesarea. And after Peter came and spoke, shared good news of, of, of Jesus, and uh, they received the Holy Spirit, as the story says, um, it was a miraculous experience. And this Roman and this... Um, Jewish person experienced something unique together. And they faced, Peter and his friends faced skepticism at first from the other Jewish Jesus followers about why they were visiting these Gentiles in their home and then baptizing them. But after they told the story of everything that had happened, most of the skeptics were excited. They seemed to agree that Peter did the right thing, that they gave thanks to God's spirit for coming to the Gentiles, and that work continued. Now, Jerusalem's the heart of Judea. I have a map here to give us a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about. So Judea is the ladder, the kind of the, the bottom, at the bottom right 
um, around where Jerusalem is. That's the region that was the origin of Judaism. But over the next several years, communities were established geographically further and further away. You can kind of see as the arrows go how, how the, this thing is starting to spread further and further away. Caesarea, that was the first stop with Cornelius, right? But after that, things really start to branch out. Okay, over the next several years, um, things are starting to get further and further away from Judea. And while these little churches often started with groups of Jewish people, more and more those communities also began sharing the news of Jesus with those outside of the Jewish community. And so people like Paul and Barnabas start preaching throughout that region, visiting all those communities and traveling to these new cities and establishing communities there, often with Jewish and Gentile people worshiping together. And one of the communities that becomes kind of a home base for these guys, Paul and Barnabas, is this spiritual community that comes to life in one of the largest and most diverse cities in the region, which is Antioch. That's kind of where that first big arrow goes up to um, in the center on the right. Antioch was a huge city by first century standards, about half a million people. It was also a very segregated city. It was built initially with a wall down the center to keep the Syrians and the Greeks apart. And by the time the church was being established there, there were at least 18 ethnic groups living in the same city, but by and large, they kept to themselves. Except for this strange new group of Jesus followers, which seemed to mix folks from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds together in one space. And the church leaders, they were pretty diverse too. Not only were there Jewish men like Paul and Barnabas who had come from Jerusalem, but there were two men from Africa leading the church. As you can see, we've got on the southern part, Cyrene, Alexandria. This is like the northern coast of Africa. And folks from there had traveled to Antioch and were leading the community as well. There was another guy who grew up essentially as a foster brother to the ruler Herod Antipas. He grew up in his home essentially as an adopted brother, the same Herod that had executed John the Baptist. So this blend of leaders in one group was so unique that it was in Antioch that observers of the community started giving this group their own name. People called them Christians for the first time. These people gathering together that normally wouldn't be together because they were all connected to this Jesus Christ. And it's there in Antioch where we pick up the story we're going to look at today in Acts 15. All right, so we'll kick it off at the beginning of the chapter and I'll be reading throughout. Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate with them, the church appointed Paul, um, uh, appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up, meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. And so they went on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they were relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. All right, so little pause. This is the setup for the rest of what's to come, but before we go on, I just want to clarify a little bit about what's happening. So what we're seeing in Antioch is a debate starting to really form about what is needed for a non-Jewish person to become a follower of Jesus, or a Christian, as they're starting to call them. So folks from Judea clearly believe that Gentiles can indeed join the faith, but they need to practice Judaism to do so, and that includes being circumcised. 
And for them, following Jesus is simply the next iteration of being a good, observant Jewish person. And they assumed that eventually, whatever someone's initial background, part of that faith, practicing that faith, would be um, practicing Judaism, including the dietary restrictions um, and so on, to really be included in the faith. But clearly, Paul and Barnabas and some of the other diverse leadership in this vibrant young community in Antioch, they disagreed with what these folks from Judea were teaching. And it was a pretty vehement disagreement. And so it was decided that a gathering of all the most senior leaders in this whole Jesus movement needed to get together and really sort things out. So a sort of conference was called, what's become commonly known as the Council of Jerusalem. Reading on. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported sorry, all the things God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. Both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. And there, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. So now, why are you putting God to the test? by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. The whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. All right, so in the midst of what sounds like a long heated debate, Peter's reminding the community of what had happened in Caesarea some eight years before. He tells that story once again of his encounter with Cornelius. And then Paul and Barnabas, they chime in with what they've been seeing in places like Antioch. And now the mic is going to be given to James. Now, before we see what he has to say, I, want us, I think it's helpful for us to know who we're talking about. This James is actually the younger brother of Jesus. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He had been skeptical of his big brother during his lifetime. But according to Paul, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to his younger brother, James, and he came to believe. And not only that, James became a major leader in the movement. He eventually was the central leader, think lead pastor, in this oldest established church in Jerusalem. So now we're going to read what he has to say all the way to the end of the passage. After Barnabas and Paul stopped speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, another name for Peter, has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David, and I will restore, rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Namely, all the Gentiles I have called to be my own, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. 
And therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For Moses has had, has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from amongst them, Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter with them. From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some have gone out from amongst us with no orders from us and have confused you, upsetting your minds by what they have said, we have unanimously decided to choose men to send to you along with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we are sending Judas and Silas who will tell you these things themselves in person. For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us not to place any greater burden on you than these necessary rules. That you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from doing these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were dismissed, they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the entire group together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it aloud, the people rejoiced at its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with a long speech. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming, along with many others, the word of the Lord. All right. So that's the rest of the story. After much debate at the Jerusalem Council, consensus is reached. Jesus' brother James puts forward a proposal. Apparently the whole crowd agrees. And a letter is crafted. Barnabas and Paul, along with two others named Judas and Silas, return to Antioch with the way forward in hand. That's the story. So what can we take from it? What might be helpful for us as we end this series on community evolving? I want to suggest a few things. First, organizational evolution needs an organizational process. Often, I think evolution starts somewhat organically. Individuals through some lived reality might understand or begin to voice something differently. Perhaps a small group has a unique experience. They're impacted by it together. Maybe they meet up with others who report similar experiences and something unique begins to grow. And that's a beautiful impetus to change happening. Think of activists on the ground beginning to name what they're seeing up close, on Twitter, movements growing as hashtags go viral. Peter and Cornelius, each having this powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit that brings them together, something miraculous and life-transforming happens as a result. But as the setup of the story shows us, eventually those organic experiences can become frustrated if there's not a coherent way for change to happen more broadly. If a small group or a family unit, in that kind of size, it might be possible 
to evolve together without much struggle. You can kind of stay in step with each other, being in all the same conversations to some degree. But as groups get a bit bigger, as groups become groups of groups, things get more complicated. In the early church, for the first several years, it seemed that folks were generally operating on their own or in small teams as they each saw fit and as they understood the spirit to be speaking to them. And it was organic and it was kind of loose and for a season it seemed to be working. Peter and Cornelius, Paul and Barnabas, these, these unnamed folks from Judea, just all doing their own thing that they believe is true, all a part of the same movement. They're in the same general organization of Jesus followers, but there hasn't been any structured process in the movement to contend with things that might be changing in their midst. And so as different people are moving out in different ways, things start to get messy. There's confusion about what's needed, what's not needed. And when we're talking about something as physically consequential as first century adult male circumcision, let's be honest, the stakes are real. <laughs> confusion can lead to interpersonal conflict, which was starting to reach a tipping point at the beginning of our story. And in order to move forward, a structured process was needed. So here at Haven, I think we might also be in a place where without a more formal structure in place for evolution, things at times might feel kind of messy. In the beginning, when we were meeting each week in my living room or around my dining table, it wasn't that hard to find consensus on an issue that came up or to deliberate a new thing we wanted to try. But through the years, we've grown some. Though it might not always feel like it on a Sunday morning, there are a variety of people, around 60 or so, from all over the Bay Area and beyond, who are a part of this community. Some are uh, here in person today, right? Some are joining us online. Some are waiting for the next small group to start gathering or the next Connection Sunday. And some are kids and youth hanging out with Jeannie right now. Particularly, I think in this, whatever we would call it, post-COVID, this whatever world we're living in. In this era, different folks are connected in different ways and with different hopes and needs to keep in mind. And so evolving together, it does just look different than it used to. And on top of that, we're a community who's trying to build something new, something beautiful, something redemptive, some spiritual community, as we have said, that values safety and diversity and centering around Jesus. But if we're honest, we as individuals and groups, all of us are evolving out of systems ourselves that I think, as Jeannie named, have not always been safe places or diverse places or places that were particularly centered on the values and spirituality embodied in Jesus. And so we naturally bring with us our own histories and cultures and ways of doing life and church. And though we may desire to be something beyond what we have known, the becoming of that can at times feel challenging and elusive. We inevitably make mistakes. 
And when we do, if we even unintentionally hurt one another in our community, it's not always clear how that hurt could be named or repaired. Many of us are likely having a host of feelings around the news that our Connections pastor for the last three years, Jeannie, has decided to move on from Haven in this season. And I know, I know I do. I love Jeannie dearly. I'm so grateful, so very grateful for all the ways that she has shared her gifts, her dreams, her very self with us in recent years. And though I'm sad not to partner with her in the same way, in love and respect and trust of her, I honor her decision to move on at this time. And I want to send her forward with blessing into the next season of her journey. And I invite all of us to do so. And Jeannie's reasons for moving on are her own. They're not mine to speak to. But I do think her transition is an opportunity for reflection for all of us around what this little haven system is that we're a part of, how it works, and how we want it to work. How is power shared here? How are decisions actually made? Are there ways we could make things clearer or more in line with our values? Are there places where we're missing some procedure, some structure, some process that we would be better served by? And I'm not talking about adding bureaucracy where it doesn't need to be there, but I do think it's important that we take the opportunities for learning when they come, and that means noticing where and when, like the early church, we might need clear processes for course correction and growth and change to happen. Because I believe sooner or later, organizational evolution needs some sort of organizational process. The second thing I notice from the passage comes from what happens once the early movement gets to the process work. A collective change process often includes struggling together to find the right outcome for the group. A collective change process often includes struggling together to find the right outcome for the group. So the process is in place. The First Jerusalem Council is called. Leaders from throughout the burgeoning organization come together. And it sounds like for a while, it was a struggle. The text tells us there was much debate. People clearly felt pretty passionately and not all the same way. And they had different life experiences, different spiritual experiences, different takes on how they should move forward. There was a time of struggle where at times they probably had to check themselves. They probably had to take some deep breaths, stay present, stay humble, stay listening to what Peter or Paul or one of those pro-circumcision folks was saying. And it was hard work. And perhaps for us too, having conversations around our organizational culture, what informs it? What systems do we want to have in place to address things, to create pathways for change? That also might be a bit of a struggle. We might miss each other sometimes. We might have to work to see things in another way. 
particularly those of us whose identities have historically been privileged, those of us who are white or heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied, and so on. We may at times have to work extra hard to consider things from another point of view. Because let's face it, we've been socialized from birth to understand our own perspective as the only one. And when that's the case, we may not even see that someone else might feel or understand things differently unless we stop and listen and consider and are willing to struggle together to find what works best, not just for ourselves and those who share our lived experience, but for the whole collective. It's going to bring up lots of feelings for lots of people. Organizational change is hard work. Collective change is hard work. I also want to name, clearly, it's work we're invited into together, but not compelled into. Sometimes folks might need to tap out from the struggle or have a breather or take a step back. And part of doing this together, part of being a part of the greater evolution of this Jesus-centered spirituality is having grace for one another and honoring that. And honoring where each of us is at and what each of us needs. And that's what brings me to the third and final thing I notice from our story. Struggling together can bring new outcomes and ideas that weren't previously imagined. I'll repeat that one more time. Struggling together can bring new outcomes and ideas that weren't previously imagined. It's through the struggle in the story, through the listening to each perspective, through the debate and so on, that James's compromise solution emerges. And he hears the desire on one hand to honor the law of Moses, the Jewish traditions that have been upheld for centuries. He also recognizes that the way God seems to be doing a new thing, bringing in new people with a new set of concerns and experiences on the other and holding both realities. He offers something that speaks to both groups from where they're at. Now, we don't have time to unpack all the specific proposals he identifies or why they matter, but the point is that he finds spaces of common ground. He's able to hear everyone, offer a perspective that holds multiple viewpoints together. He even uses a scripture passage from the prophets to support his emerging point of view, and the proposal he puts forward, it resonates. The group moves from division to consensus. In the letter they end up sending, they say their decision is unanimous. And that they also name in the letter that they don't believe they came to this decision simply on their own. For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us, they said. They understand this work they've been doing to collectively evolve is the work of the Spirit the divine has been present even in the struggle and the divine's presence with them was what opened up pathways to new possibilities that are a part of a community's evolution. So in the end, the outcome of the process and the struggle lead 
not only to a sense of connection with the divine, the spirit in their midst, but also new experiences of encouragement and joy for the entire community. By the time they get the letter, everyone in Antioch is rejoicing. Now, does this mean it's always smooth sailing in the early church? No. People are still people. There are still interpersonal struggles. There are still disconnects. In fact, if you read, go on reading in Acts 15 to the end of the chapter, you'll see a kind of sad epilogue to this story in which Paul and Barnabas themselves end up having a disagreement and parting ways. And they both continue in ministry. They both, the work that they both value, it continues, but they don't do it together. So, of course, we're not saying that having systems and structures simply addresses all the challenges. But I do think working together in some sort of organized way can give us important tools to meet those challenges and be a crucial part of evolving as community. Maurice Mitchell is an organizer and an activist who's been on the front lines of a number of movements for justice for a while now. So he's been a major organizer in the movement for black lives. He's currently the national director of the Working Families Party. And Maurice recently wrote a long essay that's been getting circulation in justice circles about how a number of progressive groups and organizations are having challenges with interpersonal group dynamics as they struggle to become meaningful spaces for change. He describes some of the challenge this way. Movements on the left are driven by the same political and social contradictions we strive to overcome. We fight against racism, classism, and sexism, yet battle inequity and oppression inside our movements. Although we struggle for freedom and democracy, we also suffer from tendencies towards abuse and domination. We draw from the courage of radical traditions, but often lack the strategy or a conviction to challenge the status quo. Many of us are working harder than ever, but feeling that we have less power and impact. Maurice Mitchell goes on to clearly describe several problems he thinks contribute to this situation, as well as concrete solutions for a way forward in the movement for justice with what he calls a posture of joy and victory. And essentially, all of his solutions center around this area of organizational development. He encourages groups to spend time, real time, building what he calls resilient organizations. Organizations that are, as he says, structurally sound, ideologically coherent, strategically grounded, and emotionally mature. Friends, in the coming months, I hope that the various leadership groups in Haven, our board of directors, our vision team, myself, we can work together in engaging our whole community in processes that are part of our next phase of evolving. And I hope that we can give each other space to feel all the things we might be feeling now and then follow those feelings into the work. And I hope that in the work, we as Haven can become more structurally sound, more ideologically coherent, more strategically grounded, 
more emotionally mature than we currently are. At times, it might be wearying. In moments, there might be struggle, and we might have to give one another space. We will likely need to look outside of ourselves for strategies and tools to engage this work, like the ones Maurice Mitchell has to share. But I hope as we do, as we engage and stay present and struggle together, like we see in the story, new unimagined possibilities will emerge among us and our community will grow with encouragement and joy. When I say grow, I'm not really talking about numbers. But more importantly, may we grow in wisdom. May we grow in compassion. May we grow in embodied love. Grow in living into our values more fully. Grow in more effectively smashing the idols. Grow in embodying the presence of Jesus to the world around us. May we grow into the haven we feel called to be, a community evolving together. Amen. Let me pray for us. Spirit, we acknowledge all the feelings in the room, and I welcome you to be present to each and every one of us in each and every one of them. And we name that uh, we understand that growth and change as a collective are hard. But we also trust that that is the work you are about May we have the humility to participate, to be open to new possibilities. May we have the courage to struggle together where we need to. May we have the grace to honor what one another needs, whether that means being in the struggle with us right now or not. And may we have the hope to trust that a beautiful, more, um, more embodied love way of being is possible in our midst. Amen. So we're going to take some time for conversation. Before we do, I'll just remind us of our community intentions. All are welcome who support the belonging of others. In discussion, we take a couple of beats. Remember, we're all learning, that we want to share courageously and responsibly, to offer grace freely, to stay curious and listen well, and remember that confidentiality provides safety. So we're going to take about 10 minutes to chat in a group, or yeah, maybe a little less, um, before we move into final worship. Here are a few prompts, or you can feel free to name, um, to speak of whatever sounds good to you. Um, what experiences do you have of a group or organization pursuing change together, and what processes were helpful? Or have you had experiences with any groups or organizations where you wished for a process or some clarity around structure that wasn't there? 
Or what do you think? A more structurally sound, ideologically coherent, strategically grounded, emotionally mature haven could look like? I know they're big picture questions. So just whatever gets you talking is fine. We're not going to answer these all this morning um, in 10 minutes. So we're going to go into groups of four or so um, and chat for a bit. And then we'll finish in worship. <laughs>